Welcome to Mind the Shift. My name is Anders Bolling. All through this pandemic, there have been protests, first against lockdowns and later against vaccine mandates. Um, the latest striking examples are these uh, massive truck convoys inspired by Canadian protesters that uh, and have now have been seen also in the United States, in Netherlands, in Australia and other places. Uh, but the mainstream media and, and leaders haven't really uh, covered much of these manifestations, though. They haven't been ignored completely. I've read about it in Swedish uh, news media a little bit, but uh, compared to other big manifestations, they haven't really been covered very much. Um, and there have also been, all along, dissenting voices among doctors and epidemiologists, experts who have had a critical view of the blanket policies of tough measures that have been rolled out in most countries. With me today, from Malmö in southern Sweden uh, is Dr. Nils Litorin. He has a doctor's degree in clinical microbiology, and he is the initiator of a so the so-called doctor's appeal, Läkarupropet in Swedish, which on its website states that it is for the shielding of vulnerable groups and against harmful restrictions. Welcome to the podcast, Nils. Thank you. Nice to be here. So as of today, as far as I have seen on the website here, 25,000 people have signed the appeal, Yes, of which, which 1,500 are hospital workers and uh, around uh, 100 are scientists. So how many are doctors, would you say, Nils? It's about 200 people now who are doctors. So we have uh, uh, professors, researchers, uh, associate professors, uh, clinicians, uh, even some um, doctor students, a few of them brave uh, young uh, people who have chosen to uh, speak up against uh, restrictions and lockdowns and forced uh, measures like uh, vaccine passports, uh, which uh, have no scientific basis and uh, cause a tremendous amount of harm, both to the uh, physical well-being of people, I'm talking about lockdown restrictions and so on, and uh, also immense uh, psychological harms, and uh, also damages confidence between the health authorities and uh, the people. The, the response has been pretty massive, I mean, despite the fact that almost no uh, mass media has told about this uh, this uh, appeal. What, what does that tell you? Well... There is an undercurrent, I mean, below the surface of people who are speaking out against this. And uh, sometimes you can see it like in our uh, appeal that, uh, especially in the beginning of the appeal and also around Christmas this year, there was a huge surge in news uh, uh, signatures of people willing to sign it. And uh, there is also like, there was a manifestation in, or a, uh, March, uh, manifestation in Stockholm a week ago that gathered, I think, over 10,000 people. And for Sweden, that's a lot. Uh, Swedish people don't normally go out on the streets. We are a passive um, people. I mean, compared to France or even Spain or other countries, we, we seldom march. We seldom, you know, make our voices heard in that kind of matter. Um, but so 10,000 people in Stockholm is a lot of people. Mm. And, and that means that there is a pretty forceful 
a strong undercurrent of discontent with the current uh, COVID politics, including uh, the vaccine passport. Even in Sweden, who had the least restrictions of all countries yeah. taken together during the pandemic. So even here, there is discontent. And that tells you something that these measures are anti-people. They are dangerous. They are not serving any purpose whatsoever that is good. As mm -hmm. I can, you know, in the scientific literature, you can try to find epidemiological studies that show that lockdowns or harsh restrictions work in, that, in the sense that they reduce the number of deaths from COVID, but there aren't any epidemiological studies proving that. So on the contrary, the, the ones that I've looked at at least, see the opposite. There is no, um, there is no correlation between you know, harsh measures, restrictions, and lower amounts of deaths of COVID-19 or, um, or excess deaths, as, uh, which is an even better measure. Yeah. So there is no correlation. And if there is no correlation, then you cannot talk about a causal relationship, which unfortunately, a lot of researchers, a lot of politicians think and act and talk like there is a causal relationship between harsh restrictions, lockdowns, et cetera, and reducing you know, spread of the virus or deaths of, or hospitalizations or admissions to uh, ICU wards. But the correlation doesn't exist. Doesn't exist, no. Well, no, it's obvious to anyone who looks at the data from different countries uh, at this stage, at least I mean, two years into this pandemic, you can see that, yeah, I mean, as you say, yeah, in the beginning, you know, I, I follow pre pretty closely several researchers, and one of them is Martin Kuldorf from mm -hmm. University. I, I've also interviewed him. I've talked to him um, on a couple of occasions. I, I, I have great respect for him and the Great Barrington Declarations, which I encourage people to look up if they haven't seen it. And extremely interesting initiative, which I, which I also signed and which was the uh, model really for our doctors appeal in Sweden. Oh yeah, I was going to ask about that because we had we had both Sunetra Gupta and Martin Kuldorf on the podcast here before. Yeah. So, and uh, we've been speaking about the Great Barrington declarations before. Yeah. So, so I was going to ask if if this uh, doctors That's appeal I mean, was was oh, was oh, based on on that. Is a Swedish version of that? Yeah, both Sunetra Gupta and Martin Kuldorf are great heroes in my eyes. I mean. And we, we have to say also Jay Bhattacharya is the third person behind it. Exactly. Yeah. And, and also a lot of the, 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 the signees of the declaration. I mean, putting all their prestige and all their, you know, their whole career basically on the line, you know, to speak out, to speak the truth about this pandemic, I think. But anyway, I, just great role models for me as a physician, as a doctor and a researcher. Yeah. Oh. You know that Kuldorf was was cancelled from LinkedIn the other day. He yeah, was banned, yeah. But then he, they took him back because there was a there was an article about it in the um, uh, what's it called now the the Brownstone Institute's website. Right. <clears throat> so they didn't dare to 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 keep him cancelled, so they took him back again. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that's another thing that uh, of this pandemic that is just so crazy that um, if you talk about. I mean, Martin Kohler is, is interested in um, collateral damage of the 
measures of lockdown. I mean, he follows this very closely. And I think one collateral damage that is obvious of this pandemic is that the censorship is bad. I mean, we thought that censorship was something that was done in Soviet Union, you know, Nazi Germany, these kind of places, North, North Korea. And what you see is really that it has uh, resurged in mm. our uh, demo so-called democratic countries. And it's mm. crazy. And people are being canceled, censored. I have had three, three videos uh, taken away from YouTube, for example. Okay. When I have made interviews with Swedish doctors and professors, so it's, it's just, um, I, I never thought actually that I would, you know, live to see something like this in my country, Sweden, which is supposed to be very democratic and open free society, you know, and, and other countries as well. I'm, I'm really, really taken aback about, about a lot of things that's been going on in this pandemic. And I know I'm not alone, but, you know, so Martin Kohler says that maybe, you know, you can postpone, uh, some of the spread of the virus, you know, by doing a lockdown or whatever, you know, on, on the margin, maybe you can postpone it, but you can't prevent the spread of the virus like that. And you cannot, you know, protect the vulnerable groups with harsh restrictions and lockdowns because the vulnerable groups will be damaged by the lockdown itself. Mm. So, and, and I think that, uh, and this has been uh, proven without, without a doubt now, that this was one, this was the most catastrophic health, public health uh, policy that has ever, during the history of man, ever been implemented. Mm. Um, yeah, he, he, he says, he usually says, Martin, that it uh, seems as if all the, the preparedness plans that were in place since 20 years ago, 30 years ago for pandemics were just thrown out, out of the window. They were just abandoned. <laughs> Yeah. All of a sudden, except in Sweden, then because Sweden was yeah. the only country that more or less followed these old uh, yeah. pandemic preparedness plans. So, so I mean, what do you think happened? What, what's your explanation to why the whole world just suddenly, or or at least the leaders of of the world and and their advisors, they all, all of a sudden they just switched course and and began um, imposing this very strange experiment of lockdowns all over the world. What what happened? Do you think? Yeah, like you said, Sweden was the control group in, yeah. a, in a mass psychosis experiment. So all of the world locked down, followed Communist Party of China and locked down their countries uh, without any, you know, uh, evidence that this would work, without any hint. You know, there wasn't even, like you said, in the pandemic plans, any, any mention of lockdowns anywhere. And, you know, masks were even about by the leader of uh, the United States, um, you know, um, a CDC, uh, or is it NIH? I forget, uh, Dr. Fauci. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, the pandemic response, responsible person in the beginning of the pandemic said that masks are completely useless, basically. They cannot stop the spread of the virus. And, you know, a couple of months later, they were mandatory across mm. the world, mm. except for Sweden. So Sweden had no masks. We had no lockdown for all of 2020, okay? This is really, really important. And it's really important, not only for me as a father, who my children could go to kindergarten, could go to school every day during the pandemic, you know? It was really important for me, for my family that I just started. Of course. Otherwise, we had been, we had, we had, had I mean, I have friends in Spain and they talk, 
they, they, they have nightmares still about the three months from the three months that they were closed in in their houses and couldn't leave their house and the children couldn't go to school, you know? They, they just don't, they don't want to think about it. They have been traumatized, mm. And, mm. you know? So, so it was- Talk about collateral damage. Yeah, I mean, and there was a study made from the first month of lockdown in London, which showed that head trauma in children, I mean, traumatic head trauma, in the emergency wards of, of the hospitals of London had increased by 1400%. Wow. And you know, children don't bang their head, you know, at that amount accidentally. It was child abuse that had soared. You can see that even in Sweden that didn't have any lockdown, but we had some, we took some, you know, voluntary measures, uh, recommendations that some of the uh, sports activities for children were closed. You know, there were, um, um, you know, a lot of these with social distancing. Yeah, social distancing and, and, and restaurants. At some period, during some period, restaurants had to close early and all that. Yeah, and, and, and you couldn't visit. Or people were afraid to visit their relatives, etc. So even in children's suite, uh, children suffered uh, psychological damage, which had been uh, showed in... Um, in uh, a child children protection agency, they they have measured this, and um, but but in the places who made lockdown, who had lockdowns, it was even worse. I mean, catastrophic damage to children, especially children in vulnerable households. I mean, if you live in a villa in the countryside, and you can you know walk in the woods or walk in your own park or in your own garden, maybe you can even have your family over or whatever. You don't suffer as much as someone who lives in a you know two-room apartment with three, four, five children, two adults. You know, they will get on each other's nerves and they will uh, suffer tremendously during lockdown, which they did. Mm -hmm. And you know, the, this one of the scariest studies, except for this one with head trauma, comes from I think it's Long Island, uh, uh, United States, New York where they measure the IQ level. It's not really IQ, it's development level, but it's corresponding to IQ in young, in infants, in, in young children that has been born during the pandemic. And they have suffered a corresponding 22 points loss in IQ hmm. compared to those who were born before the pandemic. And 22 points on an IQ scale, for those who don't know that, is a lot. Yeah, that's so these, huge. These children, yeah, these children have a, uh, correspondingly 78 as a pro median in IQ, which the normal IQ level is about 100. So and the, 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 if you have 70, you're, you're counted as slightly retarded. I mean, you need professional help most of the time if you have 70 or you're at least in Sweden, you're entitled to it. But, but that's one study, but, but, but it's, it's fairly big or it's reliable? Yeah, I mean, it, it has been reported widely. Uh, they, 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 uh, what they do in this study is that they followed, I mean, you know, with regular tests, each uh, children who are born each year. So they have a, a very large data set to compare with. And mm. it's clear the drop. It's no, it's no question that the, the drop is, is there. And sounds very scary, I got to say. Yeah, it's scary. And the, the reason is, you know, the lack of social contact, lack of 
uh, interaction with, with their peers, you know, everything is closed, kindergarten, uh, you know, uh, uh, the social trauma or the psychological trauma of being just, you know, locked in a house with their parents or whatever, and the, the, the parents don't feel well at, e at all. I mean, there's so many impacts, negative impacts of these policies. And yeah, that's what's what I'm gonna say. And that's what, what is so important that Sweden didn't do this because now we know that we have that it doesn't work because Sweden was the control group. And we have the in 2021, we had the lowest death, excess death, according to the economist, the paper economist, we had the lowest excess death in all of Europe. Mm. 2020, we were among the bottom third of Europe, the countries of Europe. And now in 2021, we have the lowest deaths of all countries. Yeah. So it's clear that restrictions, lockdowns and forced measures don't work. And it's clear that recommendations uh, without forcing anybody works probably much, much better because you have a much less impact on, you know, uh, on, the, on the society. You know, we have, we have schools, we have hospitals, we have police stations for a reason. Mm. It's not because, you know, someone invented them because no good reason. We have them. And when you interrupt those basic things of society, people are going to suffer. And it's scary to me how easy it is to close schools, like schools don't matter, you know, or have, you know, this distance education, which a lot of children don't like at all and doesn't work as well as, as in, in, in class education and which causes tremendous harm. But, you know, so, but for example, in Sweden, you know, sometimes now they have these light restrictions where it's up to the, you know, head principal of the school to decide if we're gonna, okay, we have five cases now, five positive children, we're gonna close down this class or we're even gonna close the school or whatever. But you don't do that anywhere else. You don't close down any, you know, fire departments or no. Volvo cars, industrial plants. You don't close down any electrical firms or, you know, any, even any shopping malls hasn't been closed one day. Mm. So why is it so easy to close the darn schools? I don't understand. Children are least affected of this disease of all people. Yeah, there's a more than thousandfold difference in, in uh, severity in, of the disease between the youngest and the oldest, I guess, or several thousand times difference. Yeah, I mean, probably 3,000. I mean, if you're over 70, you have a 3,000-fold increased risk compared to a child to die of COVID-19. Yeah. Just to, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with this, but there was a study made during the first wave of the pandemic in Sweden. Uh, where most of the deaths took place, where we, when we didn't have, you know, we didn't have enough test, uh, you know, testing material, we didn't have any protection uh, uh, equipment in the hospitals enough for everybody, uh, we didn't have any treatment for COVID-19, uh, you know, rolled out uh, like we do today. And still, Every ch Swedish child went to school every day between one years, that's kindergarten, and 16 years. And you know how many of these children died during this uh, time period? Zero. Yeah, zero. So zero children died. And this study was later confirmed by several others. But recently there was a German 
study published, which couldn't find a single healthy child that had died from COVID-19. I think they was five to 11 years old. So children, for this, this disease is comparable or even lighter, less uh, dangerous than normal flu for children. Yeah. That's any restriction. Mm. Yeah, so any restriction, and that's the fact. Mm. Uh, any restriction or any lockdown that causes harm to children is by definition, impro- how do you say, not proportional. Mm. Because children don't suffer any harm from this disease. And which group in society is most important? I would say as a father that children are, are the most important uh, group in society. I, 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 a disease that kills children is for me at least more of a problem, more lethal, more dangerous or worse than mm-hmm. a disease that only or, or, or just kills those who are above 80 years old. Yeah, that's interesting. It's a, it's a bit of a philosophical question, really. But it's difficult to talk about it, but in a few years we might be able to do that. But it is like, I mean, the fear of death is so strong in people that, I mean, even if, as you say, only, quote unquote, only 80, 85-year-old people die, people still think of it as, as, a, as a lethal disease. And, um, and if, if the authorities are, are, are efficient enough in inciting fear in people, they, I mean, people will, be, will do anything just to avoid this lethal danger. And, and when you look at the statistics that are, that are published in the newspapers every day, you get the impression that if this disease hadn't occurred, everybody would have had eternal life, <laughs> if you see my point. Because you yeah. only see these death figures from COVID-19. You, you don't see any, any other death figures. I mean, you don't I'm, see I'm, any I'm, cancer I'm, death figures. Exactly, yeah. I mean, it, there are huge exaggerations and we can talk about them, but I also want to make a, make a point and that's, I mean, I'm a physician. I've seen people uh, in, in hospital with COVID-19, even young people. So it is a lethal disease. It is dangerous. And especially for older people with uh, comorbidities that have, um, you know, the, 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 the median age in Sweden is 83 years old among the deceased. Mm. And that's a bit higher than the, than the average um, yeah, it's, 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 longevity in Sweden? Yeah, and especially for men. I mean, for men, I think the longevity is about 79, 80 years old or something like that. So, that, I mean, the, the median age of those deceased was, was very high. That doesn't mean that, that it, it's not a lethal disease and that we shouldn't protect the elderly. I think we should, and we should maximize protection for those who are at greatest risk of this disease. That, and and this, this group is very well defined. Mm. It's older, fragile, people with certain co- comorbidities, you could say, but as, above all, age. Age yeah. is the number one factor. So we need to protect these people and we need to avoid causing harm against the young, healthy population because then we are not helping anybody. Uh, and, and this is what the... The Doctors' Appeal of Sweden and the Great Barrington Declaration have in common that we propose measures that protect the vulnerable and that protect children. So children should go in school, should be in kindergarten. But if you have a teacher, for example, that is over 60 years old, maybe has some underlying disease, should be um, 
offered to work from home. Hmm. Simple. You can so, work, you do administrative work, you help your, your teachers to uh, correct tests or, you know, whatever. And we remove you from society when we have high transmission of the virus. But children who are not vulnerable will keep going in school because they need it. So would it be fair to say that your the, the principle of your appeal, as well as the Great Barrington Declaration, which are very similar, is to protect the elderly and the vulnerable groups from the disease and protect the children from the restrictions. Exactly. In a nutshell. Okay. So that's... Yeah, uh, to and me, that's, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. And, and if you have that perspective on things, then you can find, you know, the best possible way to, in, the, in, in a workplace, how do we protect the vulnerable? How do we protect those, how do we protect those who are not vulnerable so they can keep on, you know, making a living, go to work, uh, so they, their children don't, are not affected, et cetera, et cetera. Because when you do restriction that, I mean, for example, we have some silly restrictions now in Sweden, Even though we have very few, we have some. And for example, bars cannot be open after 11 p.m. And this is all across the country. So this causes, of course, a massive uh, unemployment in that sector and causes businesses to close, bars to close. Um, and unemployment is hugely associated to uh, uh, psychiatric illness and to, uh, uh, to death, if you, to die prematurely from different causes. So mm -hmm. unemployment is one of the worst things that can happen to a society and to, can, can happen to a person just, uh, just uh, health-wise. Yeah, let me ask you, Nils, you started this, initiated this about a year ago, I understand, or less than a year ago, March in 2021, was it? Uh, the appeal that's right yeah so uh, so i want to ask did you do this initially mostly to to protest or to to have objections to overly harsh restrictions and then it gradually switched to into being i mean more of a, a an objection to to blanket vaccine mandates, which haven't been that harsh in Sweden, but still, I mean, there's a, there's a big pressure on, on the whole population to, to, to get the jabs uh, because the vaccine rollout hadn't really begun when you initiated this appeal. So that happened a little bit later. Was it like that? Yeah. Order, order of things? We, from, from, the, from the beginning, the, the, it was clear that they were going to push for uh, some kind of vaccine passport or vaccine mandate. I mean, uh, early in 2021. Yeah. So our appeal has from the beginning been against vaccine passports and vaccine mandates. Okay. And it wasn't until I think uh, last summer that it became clear that they were going to introduce it in some, in some form in Sweden. And they eventually did in December, I think it was in first or third of December last year, like two months ago, they introduced vaccine passports. We were one of the, Um, lost countries in Europe to introduce it. If you look at Denmark, if Norway, they introduced it uh, last spring and then they removed it for some time, but they, they were much ahead of us. And it's, it's, it's so clear. If you look at the data, if you look at the epidemiological data that is widely available online and, or in uh, epidemiological studies, 
that the vaccine passports has not done zipped to prevent spread of the virus or deaths. And, no, and, 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 it was, and it wasn't feasible to think that they would. No, we're going to come back to that and what's happened with Omicron and everything. But uh, I, I think it's difficult to, as far as I can see in this debate here, difficult to have any objections at all, um, generally, uh, uh, and not be, you know, lumped together with, with, with a general pile of anti-vaxxers and conspiracy theorists that can't be trusted. If you have any objections uh, on de- in detail at all, then you're lumped together with those so-called anti-vaxxers. So are you an anti-vaxxer? No, and I think that's, uh, that, that, that's something that they throw at you to discredit you. And uh, yeah, I mean, for example, in Sweden, there are 97% of the population vaccinate their kids. So any you know, vaccine, anti-vax, anti-vax group in Sweden will be very, very marginal and small before this pandemic started. We're talking about a few percent and how many of them are you know, consciously against vaccines and how many of them are just you know, marginalized people that don't go and seek healthcare more generally. So you know, uh, anti-vaxxers you know, promoting seriously people not to take vaccines. It's a very, very marginalized, but uh, you know, active group, okay? So the ones who have signed the doctor's appeal of Sweden are not anti-vaxxers. We are pro-science. And there is a very good case, pro-science case, to be against vaccine mandates and vaccine passports. And the fundamental question here is health authorities, to be successful in the long run, need to have the confidence of the public. If they don't have confidence of the public, then public will hesitate to uh, do the recommendations that the, hospi- that the healthcare providers recommend. They will not trust the authorities because, oh, is, that, is this how you make decisions? Then I don't want to have, any, have anything to do with you. I already have COVID. And now you're going to force me to take a vaccine, even though I know that my natural immunity is superior to, the, to, that, to, to what the, the immunity that, that, that the vaccine offers. Are you going to force me to do something that I'm not, you know, I don't need? I'm, then I don't want anything to do with you. I mean, that's the reaction of some people, unfortunately. And then mm-hmm. you have damaged distrust. And that can take decades to repair. And as a physician, I'm scared of that. I'm scared of people losing faith in our healthcare system. And I think that the vaccine mandates and vaccine passports, which are two sides of the same coin, just you know, handled a bit differently. They, so they, there, there's, there's no difference really, you mean in principle uh, between mandates and, and passports? No, vaccine passports, I mean, it prevents you from, you, you become a second-class citizen in your own country. Yeah, but it's still possible not to take the jab. Um, I mean, if you avoid going to the cinema and theaters and things like that. Uh, but yeah. if there's a va- vaccine mandate, you, you're just yeah. by being a citizen, not being vaccinated, you're, you're violating the law, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
yeah, I mean, of course, ma mandating it is even worse. And it's, it's crazy that uh, people can't, I mean, Western democracies like Austria is even- Yeah, this, day, this very day when we record this, I think Austria is gonna impose this, which is a bit strange considering Omicron and everything, so. Well. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's-, it's uh, Anders Tegnell, our um, head, uh, uh, head of the pandemic response in Sweden, um, He's a physician. He, he said that in he said in 2020 that the whole world went mad, mm -hmm. okay, except for Sweden. People around him, he said that he had, in other countries internationally that he had contact with had gone and, and you know politicians all around had gone mad. And I think that's the case that some countries like Canada, Austria, uh, Australia, they have gone mad. They are they are not longer. Uh, cannot count them as full democracies anymore. I mean, look, look, look at look at how they talk about the unvaccinated. They talk about them like vermin, like they were rats that need to be dealt with. That they have lost patience with them, patience with them. That they have they are like the leaders, the presidents are pointing their fingers at a group that are that is blamed for all the wrongs of the pandemic. When in fact, yeah. It is the leaders of these countries that should be blamed for not protecting the vulnerable and for imposing crazy, very harmful measures um, during the last two years. I have three examples here of what you're saying. The French president, Emmanuel Macron, he has said that unvaccinated people are not proper citizens. Yeah. The Canadian PM, Justin Trudeau, has said that unvaccinated are misogynist racists. Yeah. And the former British PM, Tony Blair has said that those who don't take the vaccine are idiots. So there's three examples. Yeah, and that's that that's the language that you hear repeated any day, you know, online in, in Facebook, Twitter, because people buy into this uh, mass hysteria, and it's so easy to find a scapegoat, you know, and 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 blame everything on on these idiots who are so you know unscientific and doesn't don't fo follow the rules or whatever but let me tell you something any person who have had covid have natural immunity that is superior to that offered by the vaccines this has been showed in several large studies the best one that i looked at was from israel in that israeli study it was 27 times less likely for a person who had had COVID to be reinfected compared to a vaccinated person to, with Pfizer, two jabs, to be infected. So- Symptomatic, have, symptomatic disease, yeah. Reinfection was 13 times, to, I think, wasn't it? To have symptomatic disease with COVID. So natural immunity is superior. And that is no surprise to anybody who knows something about infections, infectious diseases or in, in, the immunologic response to pathogens. So to force people who have already have superior immunity to take a jab, which includes a little, but some risk. I mean, there was uh, three famous cases in Sweden of people dying from the vaccine. So these are not risk-free treatments, but to force people to take something that includes a risk when they don't need it, that, that is crazy and that, is anti-science. 
Yeah, I've been delving into this national immunity thing myself a bit lately. And there was a second recently, I think on the 24th of January or something, there was a second big study, this time no less from the United States, from the CDC, actually, which confirmed what the Israelis had come up with. And it said that, I mean, you could see that the, as you say here, natural immunity was actually a little bit, uh, not very much, but 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 you could, anyway, you could measure the difference. It was better, more efficient than only having taken two jabs and not having had the disease when it comes to uh, avoiding uh, hospitalization at least yeah. so it is more effective so i'm thinking in sweden there is a, i mean we don't have a vaccine mandate we have this vaccine passport but it's not a big problem but it is a problem for those who want to go to the, the cinema theaters and things like that but but still there is a pressure on everybody to take to take the whole but, package but, here but listen, it's not only about the cinema and going to the theater i have yeah. several friends who have lost their jobs uh, oh really yeah oh yeah because they won't take the vaccine because the employers, they pushed in, they push this very hard at some places because it's a, it's about, um, it's about how do you say uh, to submit? It's about submission mm. that you need your employers to do what I tell you, or else. I, I, I look at it that way because it has no rational basis anymore. Is no, but I mean that's not that's not it's not the law. I mean the government hasn't 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 forced every employer to to impose these kind of rules. Uh -huh. That's every employer for himself or herself to decide that, I guess. Yeah, I mean the, they they require it uh, in 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 large part of the several municipalities require it if you want to work in in. Uh, uh, in the healthcare, for example, okay, okay, in the care of older people, uh, also in uh, some, um, uh, yeah, some some hospitals re require it when, when when they employ people, and you know, I, we talked about natural immunity, and now with Omicron, it's clear from the data from several countries that it spreads everywhere. It doesn't matter now if you're vaccinated or not, no, because it spreads anyway. Yeah, I mean, the vaccines are a personal protection that is supposed to protect yourself from severe disease and death. That's okay, but they do not prevent the spread of the virus. Did, did, it, did, it, did they protect the spread of the virus earlier when we had the, the alpha and the delta variants, do you think? That's hard to say. I, I mean, there is a case to be made that they did. But on the that, other, that, that was one of the big arguments why everybody should take the vaccine because then you yeah, can I mean, protect vulnerable groups in that yeah, way. Yeah, I mean, yeah, okay. But, but this, these things are quite complicated and I don't think that anybody really knows because there are so many contradictions. So for example, you can see those in several studies where it were made that vaccinated people would transmit the virus uh, as at a less free, not, not you know, stop to transmit it completely, but transmitted less than unvaccinated people, for example, in a household with the, I think with the alpha variant. So, but at the same time, you had studies demonstrating that countries at higher degree of vaccination did not have a less degree of deaths or uh, did not have a less degree of uh, spread of the virus. Mm. They didn't have less cases. So it was contradictory. And 
and, and this is, I mean, immunological, Im, 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 immunology, infectious diseases, microbiology are fields that are extremely complex and great fields for research. I mean, I think the human, in the human body, there are two, several complicated systems. I think the brain and the immune systems are the most complicated. Okay. And therefore to mandate people, you know, things that are, that we have never done before, like taking experimental vaccines based on temporal data that can be changed from one month to another, doesn't really have any scientific uh, basis or value. I think it's, it's, it's very, it's a very fragile uh, base, so to say. I mean, this can tip over any second and now it has, has done so. But with the, the vaccines are tested, of course, by, but they are preliminarily uh, approved, but they are tested. I mean, it's yeah. not, I mean, you say it's an experimental <clears throat> kind of treatment, but it's, uh, some people would say that that's, a, it's a stretch to say that because I mean, they, they were tested beforehand before they were rolled out. At yeah. Least. So, so, okay. So what I mean by that is normally, um, I mean, for example, in my research, I, I studied a vaccine from the uh, streptococcus pneumonia, pneumococcal disease, uh, and common cause of, of pneumonia uh, in, in, in children and adults. And when the vac child vaccine was, was um, approved by the FDA in the United States in year 2000, the study that that approval was based on was a randomized controlled trial, double-blinded, which is Uh, standard which, procedure in, in this standard procedure context. which absolutely need to get an approval that had uh, been carried out between 1995 and 1998 with about 35,000 children and then it took another two years before it was finally approved so at least three years of randomized controlled trial And then another two years before it was finally approved, okay, mm. with 35,000 children. Now we, now we are vaccinating children all around the, the globe with uh, mRNA vaccines. Do you know how long mm. they have studied this vaccine in children? Not very long. <laughs> I don't know how long. Yeah, when it was approved in Sweden, they had one randomized controlled trial from Pfizer which had a follow-up of one to two months. And in the abstract of that um, study, it stated that this is an ongoing study. It's not completed yet. So it's an ongoing a clinical trial, phase three trial that is supposed to be finished, uh, if I'm not mistaken, in May, 2023. Okay, so that's that's what you mean when you when you talk about experimental treatments, because we, we we have yeah, I mean it's for months instead of years, which is the normal procedure. Yeah, and 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 normally you need to finish your phase three trial before you get an approval. Now they have an emergency in they had an emergency use approval when they were first approved in, by the FDA in in the United States. In Sweden, they have something called uh, I think temporal temporary approval uh, i'm not sure about the exact phrase here but it's not 
the normal approval, it's a temporal approval that needs to be renewed each year. So it is possible that these vaccines in Sweden, at least or in Europe, will not finally be get the full approval. It's possible. Yeah. It's not perhaps, I don't know, it's not, maybe it's not very likely. It would be a tremendous disaster. At least it's not inevitable, at least, yeah. Yeah, but I, I, mean, I know that you you have said that's in how these vaccines are being rolled out. Yeah, in in some uh, and, and and for adults. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, so the clin you need you need to look at the data. You need to look at the at the clinical trials really to to understand what's happening, and the clinical trial for adults which had. A lot of people, like 40,000 Pfizer's clinical trials, but the one for children had only 2,000. Mm. So we need 40,000 adults to experiment on, you know, to in our clinical trial. I think that's that's a good number. That's a large number. But children, 2,000. That's very strange to me that you only need because if you have a side effect that is one in 3,000. Or one in 2,500, you will not find it in that study. You, mm. you, you would risk finding it. Mm. There's a lot of talk of the myocarditis risk here, and, and there are several studies I heard just the other day, new American studies showing that in young males between 18 and 24, I think it's the, the, the risk is one in 1,900 or something like that, which is seems pretty small, but in, in, in a large population, it's, it's going to be a lot of cases. But anyway, just just um, to uh, pinpoint something that, that I know you've been talking about here and which upsets some people, you've been making references and comparisons, comparisons with um, the so-called Nuremberg Code uh, yeah. in, in other interviews and speeches and uh, how it might have been violated in many parts of the world now that, that, that we have these vaccine mandates. Um, and I understand that the Nuremberg Code or the Nuremberg Convention, uh, which is another word for it, was replaced in 1964 by the Helsinki Declaration or Declaration of Helsinki. C can you explain yeah. what, what you mean by, by this violating the Nuremberg Code and, and what it is, what it is that you're talking about here, the reference? Yeah. So some people get upset. That, oh, you shouldn't compare what we're experiencing now to, you know, to uh, Nazi Germany and, and the lessons from what... I'm not doing that, actually. I'm, I'm not saying that what we're experiencing now is in any way comparable to Nazi Germany. I think that would be a very large stretch, okay? But it, you can't either be prohibited from talking about the Nuremberg Code because the Nuremberg Code is so essential to all of medical ethics thereafter. Basically, there were very little medical ethics um, before uh, the Nuremberg Code, which was basically they rounded up the Nazi doctors after the Second World War that had committed huge atrocities, killed thousands, hundreds of thousands of so-called patients, committed uh, inhuman experiments on them against their will. And I believe seven of the doctors were sentenced to death and several other were in prison. Now, the lawyers and the doctors of that time that were involved in this, they decided or thought that this should never happen again. And therefore they made some points, you know, in the Nuremberg Code, they wrote it down. And the first point is so very clear. 
You cannot force anybody to take a medication or an experimental medication without informed consent. And you cannot fool anybody to take it. You cannot push anybody to take it. You cannot use your influence so in a way that you convey someone, you know, to take it. You need to be, I mean, it's, I don't have the exact meaning here. I, I, I urge people to look it up, but the first mm. paragraph is very clear. There should be no force or no, you know, mandatory um, uh, medi med medication. And I, I believe personally that we are violating this code in a massive scale because we, even with the vaccine passed, in, I mean, in places like Austria for sure, but even in Sweden where we have these vaccine passports, if you read the Nuremberg Code, it's clear that we are violating that. Because well, I know not everybody you, agrees with you. If you lose, you lose your job, or if you uh, lose uh, the right, if you become a second class citizen in your own country, if you can't go to the cinema, can't visit places, you can't do this, you can't travel. I mean, the list goes on, on the, both on things that they prohibit people from doing or are talking about prohibiting. In this vaccine passport is basically a carte blanche. They can inject whatever they want into this vaccine passport. Next, next month, they want my twin. You can't leave your own town. Is that a mandate? Our that, new Chinese future, perhaps. Yeah. So, so they can, and, and people who say yes to this vaccine will think, oh, it's a good idea. But you're not, no, you don't know what you're saying yes to. The authorities <laughs> haven't declared what, the, what, what's the, what they include. They just say, oh, it's a vaccine passport. You can't, you know, for now, you can't do this and this. Yeah, well, what about tomorrow? Mm. What can't I do tomorrow? Mm. <laughs> well, that's a question of, of uh, like you've talked about before, the fa faith in authorities. Are, yeah. are we going to lose it or not? Uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with how the Japanese government formulates this, uh, you know, the, their 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 wish that people get vaccinated. Have you seen it? No. Ja no Japanese last, last point. And and they don't even state how many jabs you have to take. Is it two? Is it three? Do I need to take a fourth to be, a, you know, a, a normal class citizen to be able to go to a restaurant or travel or whatever? They don't state it. I mean, how can you say yes to something like that? without knowing what you're saying yes to. It's, it, mm. it doesn't make any sense. It's a carte blanche, as we say, yeah. Oh. Yeah, well, I, I was just, I'm sorry I interrupted you there, but I, I think it's interesting to see what, how the Japanese government yeah. formulates this because it, yeah. it has to do with what you were talking about, the Nuremberg Code and everything. They say, I'm, and I have no, I, I don't know much about Jap, Japan and how they have handled this and how many people have taken the jab. I don't know, but I just, I've seen this couple of times and I checked it up on the, the Japanese government website. So I know it's accurate and correct. Yeah. They say it like this, although we encourage all citizens to receive the COVID-19 vaccination, it is not compulsory or mandatory. Vaccination will be given only with the consent of the person to be vaccinated after the information provided. Please get vaccinated of your own decision, understanding both the effectiveness in preventing infectious disease and the risk of side effects. No vaccination will be <clears throat> given without consent. Please do not force anyone in your workplace <clears throat> or those around you to be vaccinated and do not discriminate against those who have not been vaccinated. It's kind of nice, isn't it? Yeah, 
and I, I'm for that. I think that, I mean, I'm not against these vaccines. I think that especially people in risk groups, vulnerable people, uh, should, should, uh, should have that protection if they want to, voluntarily, of course. Okay, when you have informed consent, when you put all the papers on the table and you inform your patient, this is what we know. We know that, you know, they have this protection. Could be that it wanes over time. Could be that you need to take more injections, you know, later on and or whatever. And you have a discussion with your patient and you agree that this is a right treatment. This is the treatment that I want to take, that I feel informed about and I want to take it. Fine. You haven't violated anybody's will. You haven't violated their integrity. And that's what I'm worried about that we're doing now. And if, if we violate that doctor-patient relationship, you know, one time, what, 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 what will people expect from health authorities next time? I think that's great that the Japanese authorities are transparent and they are very clear about, you know, human rights and about the individual rights to say no. I think that's great because mm -hmm. I think that they will have all, all the people who need the vaccine, I think they will take it anyway. I think they will take it. Exactly. I mean, that's also my point. I mean, the, most of the people will, will, would take it anyway, especially in this country. I mean, they wouldn't have to have any, put any pressure on people. They would, no. I mean, I think 90% of the, the adult pop population have taken the jab now. I think it would be about the same without any pressure. <laughs> exactly. I mean, the only ones that are succumbing now you know, are probably, you know, young people. And I mean, do you know that people under 40, males under 40, have an elevated risk of myocarditis, myocarditis from the, the, the vaccines, especially Moderna, but also Pfizer. Under 40 males, and especially children, it's like a... Um, an inverse uh, gradient, you know, you, the, the younger you are, the, the, the higher is your risk for myocarditis. I mean, if you compare 15 year old to a 40 year old, for example, but up, up below the age of 40, you have an elevated, and myocarditis, it's not a, you know, before this pandemic, I had never heard of mild myocarditis, okay? If you go to the emergency room and they take your troponin test and it's, you know, elevated, and you have uh, are, are diagnosed with myocarditis, I wouldn't consider that mild, okay? That, that's, an, um, that's an urgent disease. Severe condition, yeah. It's a severe condition. Maybe it will resolve pretty quickly in young people. Maybe, hopefully, you know, most of them won't have any long-term damage on their, you know, growing, developing heart. But I don't think it's fair to call those diseases mild, even if you don't stay more than, you know, let's say a couple of days, one day or a week in the hospital, because myocarditis, like, you know, myocardial infarction and other, you know, diseases of the heart, when you have this um, elevation of biomarkers, for example, it causes damage to your heart. You know, and that's that's not mild. I mean, you you don't you, sell, you don't talk about you know, yeah, whatever. I, yeah. I, and I think that's a but serious. But the risk is the risk is low. It's it's higher in like you say males, uh, be, be, uh, under the age of forty, but it's still pretty low. Yeah, I mean the absolute risk is is low. Will be low. I mean, the, 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 I mean among among of course, but but you have to you have to compare 
that risk, for example, let's take the obvious one, like in a child or an adolescent, mm. let's say a teenager, what are the risks involved, the absolute risk of getting COVID-19 and, and having to you know, visit the emergency room with a heart condition or, or, I, any, or, any, sorry, serious, or yeah. any serious conditions? It's minimal. It doesn't, I mean, it's like the flu or less than the flu. We, don't, we already covered that, okay? So to get an injection, which gives you, I mean, there was a, a study from Hong Kong, which showed in children from the Pfizer vaccine, there was one in, I, th- I believe, 2,700 males, boys, that had the, 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 the myocarditis. Yes, yes. And then, then the, there was this new study that showed that 1,900 1, in males between 18 and 24. But uh, I've also, I understand also that having the disease uh, heightens the risk of myocarditis in young males. Isn't that true? Well, okay. So um, that might be the case. I think you need to speak to a cardiologist that would examine very well the data and if that has been a fact. But there was a large study, I believe from Oxford, that did that comparison. Myocarditis caused by COVID-19 or in, in positive, PCR positive cases versus myocarditis caused by the vaccine or associated with the vaccine. And it was obvious for, and it, it's that study that I'm, I'm citing that for males below the age of 40, there is an elevated risk in general from the vaccines. Moderna was much worse, but also the, um, the, the second jab of Pfizer had an elevated risk. And of course, if you don't get, get your third boot, if, your booster, there will be a, a risk one more time for you. Mm. So yeah, I mean, it's it's more likely to get myocarditis from these jabs in young males than it is from the infection. And especially if you talk about absolute risks because, because not everybody will be infected, okay? Not everybody will be uh, infected but if you have a mandatory vaccine, you can be sure that everybody will get the, the injection. That's true. That's true. Good point. So would you say, Niels, that there, there, there is a limit to free will beyond which it is warranted to enforce medical treatment? Is there any instance? Yeah, I mean, there is in Sweden. You have to have in psychiatric institutions. You have medication against people's will pretty commonly yeah. uh, and uh, I, I work in a psychiatric ward and uh, this is um, this is regulated very strictly by law uh, and you have to be in a severe psychiatric condition to be eligible for forced treatment and uh, we're talking basically about psychosis or people who are don't know the what's best for them you can say like they are so um, delusional or have severe suicidal thoughts and are deeply depressed that kind of cases and or have intoxicated them with drugs and you know so yeah that 
there is forced treatment. And even that I'm willing to discuss if that's appropriate. I think that's a lot of, there are a lot of doctors that have spoken out against that, even in psychiatric patients. But at least there you have some kind of regulation, when to use it, how, I mean, very strict regulation, actually, how to use it. And there is some kind of logic behind it that these people are delusional, they are not in contact with reality, and if we don't take care of them, they will damage themselves. But even that, I, I am willing to discuss, you know, and alternatives, because there is, it's a lot of problems associated with taking away the free will of a man or a woman and forcibly inject them with any medication. You, you, will, you will definitely damage the trust of many patients that way. Yeah. And, and, that, that, that's, and, and we, are, we, we are aware of that, of course. And that's why it's just supposed to be used very uh, carefully. Mm. Here's another example that I think most people are, are uh, know about, more people than, than, than have come into contact with psychiatric uh, treatment. Namely, when you travel, you go to some certain countries with a history of, uh, of uh, severe uh, infectious diseases like you know yellow fever, yeah. hepatitis, whatever. You go to certain countries, and then you're required to take certain jabs in order to go there. What's your yeah. take on that? What's your opinion about that? Oh, fine. I mean, that's a protection for yourself and for the, maybe for the healthcare system of country. Uh, but okay, so I can't go to, if I don't take the yellow fever shot, I can't go to, I don't know, Namibia or whatever. But, but it, is a it, is, it is a vaccine passport. Yeah. It's You're a, against those <laughs> within right? a country. You're against vaccine passports. So, I mean, this is a kind of vaccine passport. Yeah, I mean, those have all those regulations are for certain, you know, tropical countries that ha have uh, diseases that we don't basically don't have here. And to go there, you need to get that. So, okay, but then you at least you have the, I mean, fine, that's that country's uh, choice to do that. But they don't, in, I mean, that's very different, I believe, that I can't go on a holiday to certain tropical countries if I'm so anti vax that I won't get that, that uh, injection. But to have your freedoms taken away from you in your own country, that's completely different, I believe. And to have your, you know, to show uh, uh, your parts of your medical record in your mobile uh, to some doorman at a restaurant or, a, you know, a disco or something, I think that's just humiliating. Mm -hmm. And not only that, because I believe that I mean, there is a fear in society now, and people believe that because of, of the fear porn propagated by mass media and uncareful politicians, people believe, or some people believe, that these vaccine passports protect them, and protect society from transmission. If you look at the data, it doesn't. If you look at now vaccinated versus unvaccinated people, from several different countries, everybody gets infected now. I think everybody knows somebody who had the jabs, two or three jabs, who had the infection. So the, the, the logical basis for the passports, if there ever was one, doesn't exist anymore. Mm. So 
I and many people are, are actually um, experts are, are talking openly about this in Sweden now. I've, I've heard yeah. Anders Tegnell, for instance. Yeah, yeah. and even politicians say that the vaccine passports doesn't work as we thought they would. So they are, you know, the, 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 the before date has passed. I mean, the, they should be thrown away on the, you know, garbage bin of history. And people who, uh, you know, wanted to introduce these measures should sit aside, sit alongside the garbage bin of history and contemplate how was it possible that we did this? How was it possible that we violated Nuremberg code and we forced these medications on people that A, didn't want them, B, many of them didn't need them because they had already been affected by the virus, hence having superior immunity, and C, without knowing really what the long-term effects of having mass vaccination campaign in you know, young, healthy people during a pandemic. Is it possible that we propagated the spread of the virus this way by putting a Darwinistic fresh evolutionary pressure on the virus so that it escapes the vaccine, hence making the vaccine useless, even in vulnerable groups? That's a possibility. That's a mm. theory. Interesting theory. Yeah, might have happened, actually. So yeah, so there's there's a lot of, but you know, a lot of times I forget to to mention, you know, that I'm for all kinds of measures that protect the people who need protection. I mentioned, you know, taking teachers who are in risk group out of school so that they won't uh, uh, be affected by the virus. Fine, you do that. You can do that with all, you know, older, uh, you know, uh, overweight. Uh, with comorbidities, bus drivers, or taxi drivers. Maybe we should take them out of society, you know, have them on uh, sick leave during high transmission periods until the, the, the pandemic has subsided. I, I'm for those kind of, kinds of measures, logical measures that protect the vulnerable. But the measures that are taken now don't protect the vulnerable. And that's, I think, is perhaps the biggest problem. Hmm. Because you cannot have, me- I mean, there are no measures that can stop the virus. We've shown that, we've demonstrated that all over the world, that the lockdowns didn't work. In enforcing, you know, half dictatorships in Western society with police controlling you on the street if you have your, you know, vaccine passport or your papers ready or locking people in their houses for several months, it didn't work, okay? So we can just forget about that, I think. and need to use our resources and our minds to protect those who are at high risk. Excellent. Well, maybe Omicron is the ticket out of this now then. Uh, so what do you think will happen when this eventually ends? It might end fairly quickly, or at least at, during this year, I, I would s- suppose. What do you think will happen? Will politicians and government advisors admit that they went too far in some instances? Admit, no. And I don't think so. Um, there are there is a lot of backpedaling now. I mean, there are a lot of people who say, you know, oh, you know, maybe we went too far, you know, with uh, requiring uh, people to get a, you know, or 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 uh, encouraging people to get a fourth booster, or maybe we are, maybe we went too far with this and this measure. Maybe it doesn't work to have you know, clo- have the bars close at uh, 11 o'clock, you know, instead of one o'clock. Uh, maybe we went, I mean, there, there's a lot of people who already, you know, try to distance themselves from some of these 
measures because they are so unpopular or becoming increasingly unpopular, especially among young people who want to live their lives like normal. But um, yeah, I don't know. I think this has been a great um, test on humanity, you know, on, on, especially on the Western democracies. And I think we've failed on a massive scale. There has been a push to implement certain policies uh, worldwide that uh, have been catastrophic. I think health, public health and I, I and the world's leaders succumbed and uh, degraded themselves to the most primitive kind of, you know, um, divisive language, hate speech against unvaccinated people and so on. So, yeah, I mean, with these leaders, we're looking at a pretty dark future, I would say. But you, Niels, you want to become a politician yourself, don't you? I mean, you, you, run, you, you run for a, a party that you have yeah, uh, created. I have a local party in, in the third biggest city of Malmö, which is running for office uh, in the muni municipal level. That's true. And uh, yeah, I'm, 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 I think we need new leaders. And yeah. I hope to be one of them. I mean, it's, it's so obvious that they cannot handle in a logical and democratic way, you know, they haven't been able to handle this pandemic. They haven't been able to handle immigration. They haven't been able to handle economy. Um, yeah, we need new people in office, that's for sure. Okay, Niels, uh, excellent. Where can people find uh, Dr. Sapil Läkaruprupet and, and also your work, if you want to find it? Um, yeah, so in um, Läkaruprupet, I hope you can put a link. Um, I will. I will put links in the description, of course. Yeah, so there are some um, statements in English, few, but if you're Swedish, yeah, it's no problem. Okay. I like it appropriate. If you want to look at my local party and if from your if you're from Sweden, you should go at www.malmolistan.se. Malmolistan. Malmolistan it is. Okay, Nils Litterin, I'm truly grateful that you took the time to be a guest on Mind the Shift and keep up the good work and good luck out there now. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>